Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Biography sells more books now than ever before. Last year, people in this country alone spent £115 million on 12.5 million copies of biographies. And it's not just in Britain that life stories are popular. The United States Library of Congress found recently that in the previous six months, more people had read a biography than any other kind of book. But what drives this fascination in the lives of others, lives which have often long since passed? And what's the role of the biographer who provides that account? Truthful chronicler or inevitably biased reinventor? With me to discuss biography are three fine practitioners of the art. Richard Holmes is the biographer of Shelley and Coleridge, and his hugely influential book of 1984, Footsteps, was credited with changing fundamentally the way that biography is written. He's just publishing the sequel, Sidetracks, Explorations of a Romantic Biographer. Nigel Hamilton is Britain's only professor of biography, director of the British Institute of Biography, and also the official biographer of Field Marshal Montgomery of Alamein. Amanda Foreman is the biographer of the nakedly successful Georgiana Duchess of Devonshire. Richard Holmes, Samuel Johnson put biography on the map, as it were, for modern Europe, certainly for this country, with the life of Richard Savage. What makes that work so distinctive and so important for biography? Well, there'd been a, a tradition bubbling up at the beginning of the 18th century, which was actually based on criminal biography, the Newgate calendar and so on, um, popular pamphlets... Confe- rogues and vagabonds. Rogues and vagabonds. Yeah. The, one of the most famous being Jonathan Wilde, the thief taker, who was a kind of double crook, very good subject for a biography. Defoe wrote a series of pamphlets. And Johnson. Defoe wrote some popular novels in that, too, didn't he? Yes. Pulp fiction. It, it's at a point when fiction mm. and biography are, uh, you know, overlapping, really. They're not really distinguished. Mm. Um, Savage uh, met Johnson when he first came to London, young. Samuel Johnson, 27 years old. Difficult to imagine our Boswellian image of great Johnson, the roaring club man. This is a young, provincial, failed playwright. And he met this extraordinary figure in London, Richard Savage, who was a poet who'd been arrested, tried and convicted of murder, who was also probably a blackmailer, um, but also a very interesting poet. And for two years, they knew each other in London, and they walked up and down the famous... They walked at night because they had nowhere to stay. And out of this conversation, Johnson got to know Savage very well. Savage died in a jail in Bristol. And two years later, Johnson published this biography. It's a biographical essay, which comes out of the criminal tradition, but is actually the first literary biography using poetry, letters, conversations. And it's a black comedy, and you never know if Johnson in some way is defending Savage or in some way writing a sort of uh, biographical satire of him. Was it because of the low-life nature of this Nigel Hamilton, the low-life nature written by a high-life, high-class literary figure, that combination that, uh, that made, made Savage so, so fresh and made people like you look, look back on it as somehow seminal, if indeed you do? Um, partly, I, I think probably I, I agree with Richard, but I think uh, Johnson's essay in the Rambler on biography, exactly 250 years ago, um, is even more influential because I think Johnson expressed a vision of the new kind of biography, which determined how we see biography in the modern world. Can you give us a brief synopsis of that? Then? Well, basically, he said you've got to include vices as well as virtues, the beautiful and the base, you, you've, and you've got to 
to look, or the biographer should be looking for aspects of the story with which we can identify, onto which we can project. And, and he had that wonderful line about how you, the biographer must be able to move the man who's normally only moved by looking at the rise and fall of stocks and shares and interest him in a tale of love. So, so I think Johnson sees a future for biography in exploring the, the human soul, the, the, what's going on behind the extrinsic, as he called it. And, uh, and that... A approach, it, I think, really set the new biography going in Britain. And today, I, I personally think it's probably the most distinctive art that Britain has contributed on, on, in, in terms of, the, of world art. Amanda Fong, without, without being specific for a moment, would you agree, uh, would you think that you yourself, 250 years on, follow the uh, prescriptions of Dr Johnson to show the vices as well as the virtues to get behind the outer form into the inner person? Yes, I think, I think that's absolutely right. What is also interesting, though, is our, our notion of what is a vice changes with each generation. Um, and so although most biographers, even maybe 50, 60 or 70 years ago, would say we are trying to show the inner person as well as the outer person, what they think the inner person is is very different from what we think an inner person is. So that's the great change. But do you think that the idea of going for the inner person, again speaking generally, has perhaps taken over too much uh, from looking at the uh, what uh, Nigel called the extrinsic, the outside, the achievements? Well, I, I think you're heading towards uh, perhaps an obsession with sex. And I'm not. Okay. Well, I think that that hasn't crossed my mind. <laughs> that comes in part three about half past nine. <laughs> um, for example, the Victorians were very—they were obsessed with the notion of religion. And when you read a, a biography written by a late Victorian, half of it will be about the subject's religious state of mind, and then the other half will be their achievements. And today, it's not about people's religious convictions so much as it's more about their unconscious, their subconscious, their. Uh, their, their secret sexual lives, whatever. And, and I think that the balance is the same, but, but the, the actual area of interest has just changed. Back to you, Richard. The, uh, perhaps you call uh, Boswell, who spent 26 years on his uh, The Life of Samuel Johnson, the godfather in bo both senses of biography in this country. Could you, um, what's this new word, unpack that for us? <laughs> that, that sounds, yes, a suitcase. Um, I suppose... Uh, one of the things, the central things about Boswell, that um, he wrote out of friendship. He admired Johnson enormously. Um, and he thought that it was possible to write a, a, a thousand, in fact, 1,200-page book about one man, um, unpacking, if you like, his virtues and his vices, but, in fact, creating a, really a sort of larger-than-life figure who, for the first time, has... Um, an external career, a literary career, but also this inward life that we've started talking about. Um, so that uh, Boswell, for instance, would not merely narrate Johnson's life in, in terms of, sort of dialogues and coffeehouse exchanges and tavern exchanges and uh, remarks made on the road 
from Scotland to England and so on, but also he would use the interior life, Johnson's journals and prayers and so on, would also be built into this biography. And it is an, it's an epic of one man's life, uh, not all panegyric, as Boswell says. And it, the response to it was very mixed. It's now assumed this is, in a way, the, the Bible of modern biography. But actually, he, Boswell's contemporaries were very divided about whether this should have been done, whether in some way it, was, it, it dishonoured Johnson. And a very modern um, reflex is somehow was it taking attention away from his actual literary writings. You would have thought that with Boswell's power and Johnson's authority, the idea of the proper study of man would have swept through, but in fact it hit the buffers, didn't it, in the Victorian age, Nigel Hamilton? And then we had the great sepulchres erected. Exactly. I, I think the, the Victorians wanted models. After all, that's the period in which they created uh, the, the National Portrait Gallery. Which, and they were supposed to be sort of painted models on which people could model themselves. I think they were looking of, at, for models of rectitude in terms of behaviour. These were supposed to be educational lies, which took us back to Greek and Roman times to an extent. And uh, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. I'm sure that was very educational at, at the time. It's just that with the, the, the 20th century, a lot of artists began to feel that that was missing out the most interesting part of human beings and some of the most interesting human beings like women. I mean, the Dictionary of National Biography virtually had no, which was a product of this high Victorian age, 1886, virtually had no women. But there's one thing that we've left out uh, when we talk about biographies in the 19th century, which is that you have to remember the practicalities of, of, of the situation then, which is that, first of all, you have... The 19th century novel, which really does examine the human condition in the way that biographies do today, so that the thirst for that kind of inner, outer mm. exploration is being sated by that. And then second of all, there's a huge fashionable rage for people uh, publishing their own letters and their own diaries, or uh, their survivors doing it for them, so that where somebody might do a biography, well, it's too late because, in fact, their letters and diaries, although edited, are already out in the public domain. And then... Finally, when you do have people writing a biography, they probably don't have access to the letters unless they're a friend of the family. So, of course, it's going to be rather laudatory because otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to do it. And, and, and it's these three practicalities which are driving the development of biography in this century rather than just unconscious forces or you know, the culture. And it's also interesting that one of the big drives in the English novel is aping a sort of biography, the history of Tom Jones and the names of, of, of Martin Chuzzlewit, Oliver Twist, as if these are the histories of men. How, how, does, how does that figure in your reckoning of the way the 19th century is treated in biography, Richard Well, um, just to walk around this, uh, again, the idea of models and the crossover between fiction and documentary, if you take right central to the period which is Mrs. Gaskell, Elizabeth Gaskell's Life of Charlotte Bronte. Again, uh, it is a, a biography of a woman. Uh, she did actually get access to a large number of the family papers through uh, Patrick Bronte, the father. Um, and, uh, but she is a novelist, and in some ways the power of that biography, why it's rather exceptional, is that it has the, the drive of a novelist who is, again, we come back to this idea, driving towards the notion of the inner life of Charlotte Bronte. And a very interesting point that she actually discovered that Charlotte Bronte had not an affair, but a tendresse um, for a teacher in Brussels, where she went, went across herself to teach, 
And Mrs Gaskell found the letters describing this. She had the documentary evidence, but she felt she couldn't put it into the biography, not all of it. So th this is where we're, we're on a, a sort of cusp there. What is acceptable and what is regarded as a kind of trespass? And I think that has changed. I think we're mm. all saying that that line has moved. Do we can all raid the larder as much as we want now, you think? Um, I wouldn't uh, use that analogy at all. I just think the questions we ask about people's lives have altered. No, I think I'll insist on it. I mean, mm. the fact is that modern, most modern biographers are raiding the private larder as, as, as severely as they can. They're digging up, finding out everything that's back in there, uh, that's been kept in there for years that they can dig out. Uh, they're looting. I mean, you, uh, you're much more fastidious, perhaps, but there's no doubt that the wealth of biography now is to do with let's dig out as much as we can uh, and raid it. There's a looting operation going on. I mean, we didn't deny it. It gives it a lot of fizz, and it may be the right thing to do, but it's there. Nigel Hamilton is even nodding, and he's a professor of biography. <laughs> <laughs> professor because I'm a enough. professor. Professors yeah. are usually wrong, but in this case, uh, Janet Malcolm did write a wonderful book um, about six, seven years ago, about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, called The Silent Woman. And she did use this analogy of the burglar mm. rifling the, the drawers, I, I assume a chest of drawers. Yes. But, um, actually, and, and, Henry and making James, off who, with, who started with this, you publishing yes. scoundrel. Uh, the things I just would write in there is I think there is a distinction between biographies which are written of, of virtually of contemporaries, where there is, a, I think, a sense of trespass. Where you're writing back over 100, 200 years, the, the past is very precious, and that's, I wouldn't regard it as raiding it, I regard it as saving it, guarding it in some way, bringing it back. And I think that's a rather different operation. And you're doing an act of justice as well. It seems to be very well, often left out. Your justice might be someone else's injustice, Richard. I mean, you know, your act of justice saying, look, I've discovered that this woman uh, had a secret lover or a, a, two illegitimate children. Might, you might think he's doing justice to her reputation. Even 200 years ago, her family or uh, her readers might think that you're not doing much of a justice. I don't know. You're judging what justice is in that case. I mean, for instance, Amanda, did you find things uh, about Georgiana that you thought, I will suppress? No, I, n I never found anything that I wanted to suppress for her benefits. I found things like the extent of her stealing and dishonesty because of her gambling addiction, which I didn't want to discuss because it upset me, which is a, an entirely different... Uh, it's the same thing in the end. Well, it... doesn't get in the book. It went, no, it went into the book. A biographer doesn't have the right to choose. The, the biographer must put in the truth, what, no matter how painful that is. This facts thing is fascinating. It's perhaps the heart of it, really, Richard. I mean, I, as you know, admire your work very much. In the first part, half of your Coleridge... For instance, do you think you were as hard on him as you could have been? And you've, one of the things that's very interesting about you as a biographer is that you go back. I mean, you went back to your Shelley and said, look, I was, I was hard on Mary Shelley years later, mm. and you made a rectification yeah. in a way. I got underestimated her as a person to be influenced on him. Glad I've lived long enough to get that right. Uh, and you've also said biographies change. There's no definitive biography. But your judgment of a, of a particular person it's not only leaving out facts uh, and suppress. It's 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 falling in love with your subject, wanted to protect them, wanted to look after them. I'm just trying to get at this mm. idea of: yeah. is there a particular truth that you three, uh, self once or twice, are sole judges of, and we can talk in those terms? Because I don't think we can. Um, uh, first of all, the, the point about yes, biographers need to say when they've got things wrong. 
Um, and it's a continuing process, and it's absolutely right. Uh, later on in Footsteps, I wrote about Mary Shelley again um, because I, I think I'd underestimated how important she was in that relationship with Shelley, particularly in Italy. So I, I think there's room for correction, and I do say that I, I think no biography is definitive. It's, an, it's, it's a nature of the form. It's open-ended. In some way, it's passed on from hand to hand, generation to generation. So there's that element. On the other hand, I do think one has a commitment as far as you can to tell the truth, to investigate the facts. I have this great Voltaire remark, we owe respect to the living, but to the dead we owe only the truth. Now, it's also complicated what is the relationship between the biographer and the subject. Um, Was I in some way protective of Coleridge, particularly in Volume 1? I think looking back on it, and again it's rather fascinating thing about biography, after you've finished, as a book moves away from you, you get, you learn more about it. Mm. You, you see... Because it goes what, on working you, in your head. It goes on working in your head, and yeah. the book almost changes in some yeah. curious way uh, as it moves, uh, moves away from your immediate edge of work. Uh, and I think, um, to some extent, one sometimes does fall into the role of a defence counsel. Johnson is very good on this yeah. and uses the image of the trial, just to go back to Savage, um, that the trial for murder. Are you arguing, are you the judge or are you the barrister prosecuting or are you the defender? And I think it, biographers move between those positions and one of the reasons I wrote Footsteps was actually to look at yeah. how this works. It's true to say that biography is an investigative art. Um, we're all investigators here uh, and, and the criminal case in Savage is, is a very interesting one, uh, symbolic, I think. But I think the thing we're missing here, and, and which became more and more clear to me as I began to teach the history of biography um, some years ago, is that um, if you look at the way biography has been written, I specialise in the 20th century, but if you look at the way it's been written, you can see it changing almost decade by decade, i.e. just to be talking in these terms about truth or definitiveness of truth and so forth is really, to me, to my view, wrong. I, I think it, all that is relative to the time in which the biography is uh, written. What sort of truth do you think that you arrived at, Amanda, in your biography? I mean, did you think that, that there you've got her now, that's the, that's the portrait. There's the Gainsborough portrait and there's your portrait, and I know Besborough's written and various other people have written about her, but uh, um, do you think I've looked at everything that's available now, there's probably not much gonna, else going to come on the market, uh, and that's, that is, I've got the likeness and the depths of this particular subject. I think that with the very, very important and underlined addition to the best of my ability, and so therefore someone else better than me could do a more truthful portrait. But the truth, what we're, the kind of truth we're talking about here is dramatic truth, and that biography is really literary biography as opposed to films or documentaries, and that what the biographer is doing is a kind of alchemy, and the alchemy is the subject, the subject's life, and then the, biograph- the biographer's own artistic and literary sensibilities. And the outcome is the joining together of these two things. And therefore, you cannot apply the principles of science, uh, unless you're going to talk about, say, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle into a biography, because it isn't that. It is, it is, it is, it is at the end of the day, art, and it has artistic truth. Yeah, but it has to follow certain rules. You can't say anything about a real person unless you've got serious evidence, preferably from two independent sources, for instance. That's a sine qua non, of course. That that is within it. 
Uh, but it also means that you... It's not like taking a photograph. It's, it's, it's not that kind of two-dimensional reality. It's a three-dimensional reality in that, at the end, it's, it's the facts. Charles I lost his head, and it's also the, his unconscious. And, and the unconscious is something which all human beings share, and it's, our, it's a part of the spiritual dimension. You cannot quantify it, but you can certainly try to understand it. The crucial thing here is it, one is not merely researching, investigating facts. You are putting them into a shape that makes a story. The biography is a story of a life. Lives do not necessarily have story shapes. We know that from day to day. We kind of walk backwards blindly into our lives. But the biographer makes it into a complete shape. What do you say to this point? Do you think that biography approaches the nature of fiction or historical fiction particularly? I mean, there's a thin line sometimes with historical fiction. I mean, I've written a couple of books of historical fiction. You take an awful long time to do it. You take a great deal of time over the research to make sure that the facts you use are the real facts. Uh, and get a lot of advice and so on and so forth. This is very close to the line. There's a lot of people are writing historical fiction now and taking every bit as much trouble as, as the rest of us. So what's your view there? Well, you talk about the line. That's interesting because um, it was Virginia Woolf who, who, as the daughter of the founder of the Dictionary of National Biography, was very exercised by that line, mm. the sort of hardness of the fact and, and the need for... Uh, an exposure of personality and in tragically in her life she was never able to solve that uh, problem she she wrote that brilliant pseudo biography orlando but really just to expose the limits of biography and to be allowed to write about her lover her female lover but um, she never really solved that, and I think we're coming very close to solving it today to me that's one of the most exciting things about being in biography, uh, at the end what of, exactly? Can you spell that out again? The, the, the problem of fact and fiction, really, or the, the truth and, and uh, invented so truth. Well, I think we've become very postmodern. We've, so we've, we're mean? now assuming that uh, readers and viewers and radio <laughs> listeners actually are intelligent beings and oh, are, on, do have imagination and are actually uh, excited about this overlap between yeah, fiction and that's fact. That's not new, and, Nigel. And There's nothing post-anything about that. People, writers have always I'm assumed sorry, their readers are intelligent. I'm sorry, that is very new. I think, I think you the writers have not assumed that people are intelligent. I was in London when there was a protest outside um, a, a Leicester Square cinema against Angela's Ashes. You know, I particularly relish the fact that uh, uh, biography has expanded. Um, it, it's not only included uh, new media... But it has also, um, as Amanda said, in the 19th century, there was a strict divide between uh, fiction and non-fiction. And I think by the end of the 19th century, um, that became an impossible situation where people were interested in the inner lives of, of other people and, but could only read about them fictionally. <laughs> and, of course, that was just ridiculous. And I think thanks to a series of... Uh, of of writers and uh, scientists even. So we haven't mentioned Sigmund Freud. I mean, uh, that whole dividing... You you used the word line. That line was busted open and... and uh, Freud, By Freud on Da Vinci, you mean? Freud wrote this little uh, biography of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, which, in terms of truth, was in many ways wrong. <laughs> it was quickly exposed as being wrong. It was also r r rather a sort of wonderful visionary attempt to 
to, as he thought biography at the time was so pathetic, to try and include biography in the realm of psychoanalysis. He actually wrote... (laughs) Yes, he wrote... (laughs) Carl Gustav Jung saying the domain of biography must become ours and I think he sort of bust open that kind of trade union distinction between uh, fictional novel novel writing and documentary non-fiction biographical writing and I think I, I do feel very strongly that the excitement of the 20th century is how we've we've managed to 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 find a way of moving between the two. Yes, um, if you think about Amadeus, Peter Schaeffer play, I mean, that is really... I mean, I, I find that play dazzling because it has tremendous historical and dramatic truth and it's a play and all the dialogue is completely made up and yet you know you've seen... you have lived through a, an aspect of history and investigated... But a lot Mozart of people think you've got Salieri completely wrong. Well, you know... Some people say that, but that's great because that's the, that's the controversy and that's the debate, but there are just as many who say that he got him right. Yeah, but you don't have a vote, do you? I mean, either uh, if Salieri did poison him is a fact or not a fact. You don't, let's have a vote. You actually find out, did he or didn't he, and then you settle for it, he did or he didn't. Uh, So I don't think you have a vote. I think maybe this is the argument we're having. I think there are certain facts which are which are uh, inimical to the sort of fictional bending and shaping that biographers sometimes want to do. Nigel Hamlet. Well, I, I do object to that, because I, I think facts are always open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a very recent... Well, if our... somebody poisons somebody, what interpretation do you have there? Well, you've got to prove that the poisoning actually took place, oh, so and so as we know can... with the O.J. Simpson trial, that some of these things are very difficult to establish, even forensically. I think the biographer um, has learnt tremendous amount from fictional artists over the last few hundred years and I think the biographer if he or she wishes is perfectly entitled to reverse facts this is a dialogue with the reader providing the reader understands what's going on and reverse I think you, you take the view them. that somehow there are children out there who no, mustn't I be I do not, I object to your I really do object <laughs> to the way you think I regard. I think the audience that listens to this programme is very, very intelligent in this respect. In, I hope in actually trying to get a, a sort of multiple truths I am very old fashioned because I think when you say reverse the truth I don't know what you're talking about well, you because mean it, that to tell opens things up to reinterpretation and when Amanda is excited about uh, reconsidering Mozart's life that is the crucial point I teach biography I, I have to get students actually excited well, about I write fiction and, and historical fiction and talk to people about contemporary biography as my living and I do think that some of the things you're saying are worrying, they're interestingly worrying but by calling me old fashioned you get absolutely nowhere in the argument old fashioned as Richard has just well, shown well, quite brilliantly can actually be smack up today I, I also think there's a sort of slight nervousness about the word sex here, because I mean that is the the great contribution in the twentieth really? century. I've never I've never had that accusation in my life. Wait, but but can I just add something here? Which was uh, there's something else which is beyond our control. Look, in America, when I talk about Georgina, what everyone is the way they perceive her is as a woman who overca- overcame her mental health problems to reemerge in society as a successful individual. When I talk about her here, people see her as a debauched aristocrat who uh, lived the high life. And, and then suffered for it later. Now, they're two separate truths, and I have, and I, I have great difficulty mm. controlling either one. But I, Finally, Richard Hunt. Yes, would come in. I do, I would defend Please the notion... Please say something about sex. I'll um, make this programme the complete thing. It should. <laughs> I would defend the notion of 
that factual <laughs> truth, um, I write an entire chapter about that trial of Savage. Did he or didn't he commit murder? Yeah. But I'd say the nature of the problem we're looking at is opium... Did Coleridge really take it for pleasure or for art? That's the kind of problematic truth that we're, the biography tries to deal with. And those are the kind of problematic truths we are finished talking with. I'm very sorry. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.